And it says in mid-November, we were seeing about 10 to 15 trucks a day come into town filled with people fleeing the insurgency up north. One day, a flatbed truck parked in front of our house and unloaded nearly 100 people to spend the night in our neighbor's yard because the truck driver had spent the night there before. We ran to the bread store and bought 200 rolls so each person could have a little something to eat before sleeping and leaving again in the morning on the truck, heading to a bigger city south of us. The UN now estimates about 560,000 people are displaced from their homes. So what are we to do? This is the question that we have been praying over and over, asking God to guide, guide us in this heartbreaking adventure. I feel like Gideon being asked to defeat a mighty army, but this time the task is to give everyone hope, food, shelter, and whatever. Where we are today, we are working with 11 congregations that have helped hand out food to over 1,000 men, women, and children in more than 100 families. Other items we have delivered are hose, seed, corn, pans, mosquito nets, soap, plastic for roofing, chairs, sleeping mats, school supplies, and school registration fees. Please join us in praying for physical and spiritual health for our family and team, church growth in Cabo Delgado in numbers and maturity, evangelism in 2021, refugees' wisdom about how to bless them, safety in our area, the Bible school to be well attended and strengthen the church, and literacy classes for adults and kids to learn how to read. And that is how our support is helping in Mozambique. Again, as Lewis said, uh, good morning, church. It's great to be here this morning, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Even though it's raining, we do need that sometime, right? Have a few announcements. And I know you may be getting tired of this. August 22nd. You could probably recite that back to me, right? But August 22nd. Walk for water. As you saw last week, as far as um, your contributions and what we do with some of that, one of those is to support a well this year. And we've already committed $4,000 for that. To make a well or to dig a well and all the uh, ancillary things that goes with it takes about 10. So the only thing we need to do is raise another six, right? That's not bad. That's not bad. We did it last. We did it two years ago. With God help, we can do it again, right? There you go. So remember, when you register online, please add your T-shirt size because they will be bringing T-shirts, and everyone that participates in the Walk for Water will receive a T-shirt. Okay. Next is worship in the park, and I will be reading this for you. Or to you. It says, Arrive for worship in the park at 10 a.m. to 10.15 a.m. Worship will begin at 10.30 a.m. Okay? For the catering, remember last week I said that we will be providing food for worship in the park. So you really need to listen to this part. For the catering, we would need an accurate account of adults and children so please sign up, okay? So there will be an electronic sign-up for everyone to sign up to who's coming to worship in the park. It says volunteers are needed for setup, serving, and cleanup. 
Sign-up sheets, menu, and the schedule are posted in the foyer. Please see Kathy Whitmire if you have any questions. Okay? So we have two events on August 22nd. Walk for Water and Worship in the Park. Okay? We're still determining the uh, layout for the Walk for Water. Some of you remember the last time we did Walk for Water. If this is new to some of you, you carry water. It's not just a walk. You carry water. This is to, to remind us of what people in other countries have to do when they go get, quote, clean water. So we will uh, suffer with that for a little while. Remember, they suffer with it more than for a little while. It's an everyday event. It may be more than once a day. Okay. I saw the announcement that I have for this morning. I'd like to thank Lewis for his reading of our support to the mission in Mozambique. So let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again, we come before you as humble as we know how. Thanking you for waking us up this morning. Thank you for us gathering to worship you in spirit and in truth. Heavenly Father, we are mindful of those that are less fortunate, all the turmoil that is going on in the world. But we are also grateful that because of your love that you've shown to us, that we're able to show love to others as far as supporting missions throughout the world. We ask that you would be with our missionaries. The situations they're in, which is not always safe and nor always comfortable. But we know that you're with them. Be with them. Protect them. Continue to encourage them in the work that they do. So that they can bring honor and glory to you and your son. Heavenly Father, here in this nation, we continue to deal with COVID. We're grateful for the vaccination. But now, there seems to be a different strand coming through. Remind us that it is in our power to not only look after ourselves, but to look after our neighbors. To do those things that we know that is right. And if it's in our power, makes wise decisions. Heavenly Father, for all the violence that is also going on in our community, I pray that you will look into our communities, look into individuals' hearts. Change their attitude. Change their mind. Give them a new focus such that this violence can stop or at least be minimized. And for the families who have lost loved ones, we pray that you will continue to help them, support them, and let them know throughout all of this, you are still God and you are still in control. Heavenly Father, as we go through this worship service today, I hope and pray that there will be something said here today that will make each one of us want to draw closer to you. I offer this prayer in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Morning. Good to see everybody here today. Let's, uh, let's worship together, uh, in song together, uh, songs of praise to God our Father and to Jesus our Savior. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, early in the morning our song shall rise to thee. Holy, 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 
merciful and mighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the crystal sea. Cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, who was stand art and evermore shall be. Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. Only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love and purity. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall, let angels prosper, pardon me? All hail the power? Seems to happen, seems to happen every week, no matter how you're trying. So we're singing all hail the power of Jesus' name, right? Verse 1. All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Angels, royal diadem, and crown him, Lord of all. Bring forth the royal diadem, and crown him, Lord of all, let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, loved him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him. Lord of all, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Sorry about that. Scripture reading for today. First scripture reading is from Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. That's Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12. And it reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your, your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict, and justified when you judge. 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desire faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The second reading will be from Acts 14, verses 8 through 20. Acts 14, verses 8 through 20. And it reads, In Lystra there sat a man who was, blind, who was lame. He had been their way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates, because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out in the crowd, into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only humans like you. Why are you bringing you, why are, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not let himself without testimony, left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fill your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficult keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and walked back into the city. The next day he and Barnabas left for Derby. May there be a blessing on those, the hearer and the reading and the doer of God's word. Thank you, Curtis. It's uh, good to good to be here with uh, with everyone, and. Uh, for those of you that had to get out an extra blanket last night, um, you know, started looking for your snow shovel this morning, I do want to assure you, you have not overslept. It is the 1st of August and therefore still the middle of summer. Um, so uh, don't, don't panic, stick with us. And uh, worship in the park is going to be 75 to 83 and uh, sunny, okay? I promise. Um, well, no, I don't promise, but uh, <coughs> that's, the, that's the plan. Um, and so we will send out an email, I think Curtis mentioned that, uh, to sign up. And we want you to sign up, so look at the menu, look at the arrangements downstairs. Um, but the sign up is really for the meals. Okay? Not, we'll have the Lord's Supper there for everyone, but it's for the meals because they've been catered. So uh, if you're an adult, but you want a children's meal, having looked over the menu, um, chicken fingers are more your thing, um, then sign up as a kid. Right? That won't mess with us at all. In fact, that will be helpful to make sure that we get the right ratio. And so uh, when you go to that place we've been signing up for worship, you'll see there's two sign-ups, one for adults, one for children. Just choose the appropriate one and uh, put in the right numbers, and uh, that'll be very helpful for us. Okay. We, oh, the, I have one more thing, and uh, I know we've sort of had a lot of announcements uh, this morning. But uh, Bob Lane has uh, been in hospital for months. And, uh, and I would love if we would 
make an effort this week to send cards to her. I'd, I'd love to just sort of overwhelm her uh, with cards this week. Um, her, you can send them to her house. Her address is on the contact list. And uh, her daughter is staying at the house and going up to the hospital every day. And uh, so they will get delivered. Um, when I send out the email right after worship with the link for the sign up for Worship in the Park, I'll also include her address there as well, just to, to make that simple for everyone. So uh, even if you're not usually a card writer, uh, then uh, please make an effort this week to, to send that to her. I think that would be uh, a really helpful pick, pick me up for her <laughs> as she's uh, had tremendous health struggles. All right, uh, we are in the book of Acts, and uh, we are in chapter 14. Chapter 13 and 14 of Acts describe what we usually call Paul's first missionary journey. And we saw last week that Paul and Barnabas were called by the Holy Spirit, ordained by the church in Antioch, and then sent to spread the gospel. We're not told that they left with a specific plan in mind, and I suggested that maybe they went to Cyprus because it was a fairly short boat ride. Barnabas was from Cyprus, had contacts, had people he wanted to tell about Jesus, and that was where they began. And they then traveled down from one end of Cyprus to the other. And uh, this week, I hopefully have uh, some maps for us. I know that's small. We'll go to a bigger one in a moment. Um, but uh, you can see, there's Antioch. Maybe you can't see, but there's Antioch. Here's Cyprus. And uh, so they land here and travel to this end, to the western end of the capital city. And then from the, the capital city there, they travel up north to uh, Pisidian Antioch. So there's two Antiochs here. It gets a little confusing. But this is Pisidian Antioch, or Turkish Antioch. Uh, and, and so that is where... They, they ultimately go on where we left them, up there in the middle of Turkey. Uh, and I can, I can zoom in on that a little further. There you go. So chapter 13 ends with them here at this Roman colony in the middle of Turkey. And the Jewish leaders in that city are stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they are expelled from the region. That's in verse 51 of chapter uh, 13. And so they go to the city, the next city of Iconium. But the very last verse, that's sort of a negative to leave on, right? If you're kicked out of a city, uh, that sounds like a, a, a negative outcome, um, right? <laughs> uh, but notice verse 52. And the disciples, that is the disciples in the city of Pisidian Antioch, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They're not happy because Paul was leaving, but they're happy because they've received the message of good news. They've received the Holy Spirit. And even though Paul is being forced to move on down the road, they are filled with, with joy. There is a church there that wasn't there when Paul and Barnabas arrived. Now, we're not given detailed dates for all of this. It happens, all this, this whole missionary journey happens in about the year 46, 47 AD, and it takes one to two years. Okay? So we're going to read it in two chapters, probably take you about five minutes if you read straight through it. And it sounds as though he walks into a city and the next day he's kicked out. But the whole journey takes about one to two years. Uh, based on other events and that we we know of, so uh, it, these each of these stays could be for weeks or months before he gets people uh, sufficiently riled up to to kick him out. Um, and so they they follow this major Roman road uh, or highway that goes from uh, Antioch up here down to the next city of Iconium. <coughs> right there. And so that's, uh, that's where they land. And this is where most, uh, not most of the chapter, but, but when they arrive here, they do the same sort of routine that they had in, uh, back in Antioch and that they do in every city. 
It's a distance of about 90 miles, if you're wondering the scale of the map. And so here we see they get the initial positive reception in verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual to the Jewish synagogue. They spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. Okay, Positive reception. The Gentiles, we see that the Greeks believed, responded to the message. Second part of that um, cycle. But the third part is that they're persecuted by the Jews. And in verse 2 we see, But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers, Paul and Barnabas. So, this time, rather than just, what was it they said in verse 51? Um, It was a verse 50. They stirred up persecution and expelled them from the region. That was in Antioch. Now in Iconium, we're we're told that um, they, they... In verse 5, there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and the Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them. You know, mistreat. Well, and stone them. Yeah, that that qualifies, right? (laughs) That qualifies as mistreatment if somebody's planning to stone you, uh, to, to kill you. It's easy, I think, at this point, we see this pattern developing. And... As Paul and Barnabas come to a city, they go first to the Jews, their own people. There's this positive reception and then opposition. And the opposition isn't just unfriending them on Facebook. right? The opposition is throwing stones through their windows. It's slashing their tires. It's putting sugar in the gas tank. It's like physical and it threatens their life. Cutting their brake lines. Um, and, and I think that as readers, there's a risk that we demonize these Jewish communities. And I want to suggest that these Jews living in the diaspora, spread, scattered throughout the Mediterranean basin, um, living amongst Gentiles, that actually their experience reflects an experience very similar to immigrant and refugee communities today. So sometimes as we read, we kind of picture people like ourselves. I think this is really natural. Um, I'm not going to get into this, but it occurred to me after I'd written the sermon that... Our country's kind of going through this in terms of education, right? How do we tell our history? How do we tell our stories? Who do we identify with? And and so a lot of those same questions come to Scripture. How do we read Scripture? How do we... uh, Who do we identify with? Which stories do we hear? And so there's a, a natural way for us to read that identifies us with the hero. But I think for for many, if we come to understand who the, um, in this case, the villains are, who the opposition are, the opponents, I think we'll see that we have a lot more in common with them than maybe we think we do at first glance. And so these, these Jewish communities were not necessarily people who've been born in Rochester or born in this particular country and lived here for generations, well-established. These are people that have moved there because of war, in many cases, because of economic hardship, maybe to pursue a better life. Maybe it was voluntary, maybe it was involuntary. I mean, they, they still recognize Judea as their homeland. Jerusalem is the sacred city. They're devout religious Jews because these communities are the devout religious communities because the Jews that are not devout and religious don't identify as Jews anymore. They've assimilated into the Greek population. And so they 
there's even pressure on them and a desire to go back to Jerusalem, maybe every year, every few years, to attend the Passover. We saw that right at Pentecost. All the nations, all the people from all the nations. So these are the communities that those people at Pentecost came from. And there's this longing, this desire to connect with God in Jerusalem and in Judea, but circumstances do not allow it. And so we can infer some of the experience of immigrants, minorities, refugee groups today. Say, how did these Jewish communities function within their culture and their society? These communities are not the same as those back in Judea. The communities are fairly small. In fact, you know, in some instances, in, in Lystra, which we'll get to in a bit, um, Paul and Barnabas only interacted with Gentiles. There may not have been any significant Jewish community. Um, and so, even though they're fairly small, they're distinct. And I've mentioned this repeatedly, I know as we've gone through here, they're through Acts, they're distinct from their neighbors because they don't participate in the pagan worship, in the pagan festivals. They don't uh, worship Caesar. You know, emperor worship is one of the predominant uh, religions or cults of the, of the day. They take every Saturday off, uh, which was different from the neighbors. They only eat certain foods and uh, they can't go to the market. You know, they've got, if they go shopping at the market, they've got particular rules that they have to follow. There were a lot of things that made the Jews different from their Greek neighbors. Why would they do that? You say, well, they do that because they want to be faithful to the Mosaic law. And that's true. But one of the reasons they do that is it's also about preserving culture. Um, It's about preserving their faith. It's about passing it on to the next generation. And we see that, I think, if we think of immigrant communities here, uh, of how maybe it's the language that they want to preserve and pass on to the next generation. And and if they were told that they had to speak English and all the signs had to be in English and, and everything they did had to be in English, that they would find ways to try and preserve that language. If they were told there were festivals that were important to them in their homeland that they weren't able to to keep in this land, they would maybe meet at night and in basements and and celebrate those festivals in order to pass on the stories and and the values to the next generation as well as enjoying them themselves because they're important to them. And so these Jewish communities live with constant awareness that the dominant, ungodly, Gentile culture could overwhelm their small community at any moment. So they're very defensive of their identity, of who they are as they live in Iconium or Antioch or Lystra in central Turkey, away from their homeland. And so when Paul and Barnabas roll into town, they teach two things. They turn up at the synagogue and they go, Oh, Jews from Judea! Jews from Jerusalem, oh, this is so good. It's a connection to the motherland. Tell us what's going on. Tell us how things are. What's the the conditions? We want to hear all about it. And instead, what they do is they talk about Jesus. And the culture and the faith that this community has been so dedicated to preserving is suddenly being threatened because instead of Moses being put on a pedestal, he's on a pedestal, but he is second to this Jesus guy that's on a greater pedestal. And, and, and that's challenging to them. They've got to rethink this. And even though Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, it's a completely new way of thinking. And they're not ready for that. And then the second thing that, that Paul and Barnabas teach when they come in is that these Gentiles, these people that the Jewish community has been so careful to build a hedge around, to make sure that their children don't intermarry, to make sure that they're not corrupted by those pagan festivals, to make sure that they maintain their purity and their holiness and don't do or eat or, or touch anything that's unclean. And now Paul and Barnabas say that these Gentiles are welcome as God's people to come into the kingdom of God. And he says they can do so. They can join this community without adopting the dietary laws, without 
requiring a particular sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem and without requiring the covenant of circumcision. And he says these, and so these two teachings that the Gentiles can come into the kingdom of God and that Jesus is taken priority over Moses threaten those communities. That they may have been there for 20, 30, 40, 60, 80 years or more. Trying to hang on to say we are Jews, we're not Gentiles. We're different from everyone else. We are faithful because that pleases God. We don't want to go back into Babylonian Assyrian captivity again. Paul and Barnabas come in and say, I've got good news for you. And they go, really? Really? Because it threatens the primary identity of these Jewish outposts. And so on the Gentile side, because that's how the Jews, some of the Jews, many of the Jews would have perceived these preachers. And on the Gentile side, the Roman government required that all Roman residents participate in emperor worship okay and so there are shrines set up throughout the region to caesar because caesar was a god and i've told you before how if julius caesar was a god then augustus caesar was the son of god which meant that jesus when he called himself son of god was direct in direct competition to caesar and the emperor cult but the the jews had come to a to a um an arrangement with Caesar because Caesar realized they were firm in their monotheism and that if he was going to enforce emperor worship, he would just have to slaughter thousands of them because they were just going to lay down and say, slit our throats rather than participate in that kind of worship. So Caesar was a pragmatist, if nothing else. And he says, well, let's make an agreement. Uh, You don't have to worship me if you will pray to your God for me. And, uh, and, the, and the Jews said, yeah, we can do that. We can pray that you be kind, uh, that, that you be gentle and generous and compassionate. We can pray that you be healthy. Uh, you know, we can, we can pray for peace. We can pray for universal prosperity. And so they, they come to this agreement. And so then in, in particular, you could go to a Roman city where emperor worship was enforced, but the Jews had, an, had a loophole. There was a, a Jewish exception. Now, that's all well and good for the Jews. What happens when Paul and Barnabas come to town? Who gets converted? Some of the Jews and quite a few of the Greeks. So now you have this new group of sort of Jews with a lot of Greeks in it. And it's like, well, hang on. The Jews have this exemption from emperor worship. But what about the Christians? What about the Gentiles that come to this new kind of Judaism but aren't Jews? Do they have an exemption? The answer is no. Because the Jewish community, when they went, when the Roman officials would go and consult with the Jewish leaders at the synagogue, they'll say, oh no, they're not Jews. They don't keep the dietary laws. They, they you know, don't worry about clean and unclean. They um, don't worship at the temple. They're not circumcised. They are not Jews. And so the Romans are going, well, now they're not worshipping Caesar. They're not worshipping the gods that bring us our peace and prosperity. And so we need to take action. We can't have this. It's going to destabilize our society. And so the Gentiles had good reasons in their mind to want to put an end to this new religion, monotheistic religion that was being introduced And so these new Christians fall into an uncomfortable space of being resented by everyone. We see this in Iaconium, where the Jews and the Gentiles come together, right? That was verse uh, verse 5. It says that there's a plot afoot among both the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. Um. They both regard them as a threat to their communities. So as Paul and Barnabas leave Iconium, they get out before that threat of stoning is carried out, and they travel to a new province. And uh, they move over to the city of uh, Lystra, which is there. Thanks, 
Jim. Um, and uh, it's the next stop on the road. And here they have this really interesting experience. And again, I want to give you some backstory. But while, before I give that, just think, though, back to that situation where people are defending their faith and their beliefs and their culture. I mean, you might say, well, stoning or murdering someone, that's a bit extreme. Okay. But how, how important is it to you to defend your beliefs, to defend your faith? to defend your culture, to defend your values. Like it's not something that you just roll over and say, oh, okay, we'll do something different. Just like that. It's a really difficult, challenging process. And I think we're seeing in our society that where those, that identity is challenged, people will react strongly. And so these people here in Iconium, these Jews and these Gentiles, they're really not different to many of us. They're not bad people. They're people that are actually trying to be faithful to God. And, 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 and they've labeled these people as false teachers. Many of us might think that in that sense they are responding even appropriately. All right, so then they come to, uh, to Lystra. And uh, here there's uh, the backstory. There's an old Greek tale uh, about this region, this particular region of Lystra. And uh, in the story, the Zeus, the head god that you know, sits on Mount Olympus, and his son, who is also the messenger of the gods, he's young and he's fast and he talks a lot. Um, and he takes, they both travel together and they take on human form. And they travel through this region. And they get tired. And they look for somewhere to rest. And you would think that a region of Zeus worshippers would open their doors to them. But they don't recognize them. Or they don't acknowledge them. And for a thousand doors that they knock on, they are refused. Eventually they come to an elderly couple and they're given hospitality. Um, and they, there's a temple that's erected there for them. But before they leave the region because Greek gods are capricious, they send a flood, a destructive flood down that uh, wipes out those thousand homes and others around them you know, throughout that whole region. And so they kind of have a bad, this, this region has a bad reputation of being unreceptive, inhospitable to the gods. And so when the god of Paul and Barnabas performs a miracle in the town of Lystra. Well, the people recognize it as something supernatural, right? This lame man, rise up and walk. It sounds a lot like Peter at the temple, if you, you may notice that uh, earlier in the book of Acts. Uh, but uh, rise up and walk. And when, they, when, when he does this, he jumps up and he's rejoicing. And the crowd says, oh, we know what's happening here. This is Zeus and Hermes again. They've come back to test us. They've come back in the form of men. And, and we've learned our lesson. Okay? We're not those inhospitable people of our ancestors. We're going to welcome them this time. And so they, they form a parade and they, the, the priest at the temple hurries around and gets things organized and, and brings the, the cattle out to be slaughtered as a sacrifice to worship them, to give, demonstrate hospitality. Well, Paul, of course, is aghast at this, right? It's like, what are you doing? I'm not a god. Don't worship me. This is like the opposite of Christianity. Um, there's only one god. This is kind of the basis of everything. He says, we're, we're instead, we're here to bring you good news. We're here to bring you gospel. Let me tell you about the creator God, not the Zeus God or this Hermes God or Asa's gods, but let me tell you about the creator God who will welcome you into his kingdom. It's the same God who has given you food and joy throughout the years. That's in verse uh, 17. And even though Paul is denying this, and even though he is um, <clears throat> trying to redirect them, the crowd was still driven by this Zeus and Hermes narrative, convinced that they were somehow supernatural gods. And it says that 
in verse 18, even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. And that's a pretty chaotic scene. And in the middle of this chaos, um, then we see that some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Okay. Just because you kick a false teacher out of your town doesn't mean you're happy that he's gone to the next town to cause trouble. So they follow him they, and uh, they, they come to warn the community there. Um, but we're, we're told that when they get there, they won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. Remember they had that plot to stone him back in Iconium? They carry it out in Lystra. And and you would think, how could the crowd switch so quickly? For one minute they're going to worship them as gods, for the next minute they're stoning them. And and I don't know the answer to that, but we see that in in Jesus himself, don't we? That one minute the crowd is welcoming him into Hosanna, Hosanna, Palm Sunday, come into Jerusalem. And then three days later, or or a week later, is is crucify him, crucify him. We see also in the life of Jesus how when he performed miracles that the Jewish, his Jewish opponents accused him of doing them by the power of the devil. And I think maybe that it's quite possible that something like that happens here because they've welcomed Paul and Barnabas as gods. But now they're saying, no, we're not gods. And so the Jews arrive at that moment and say, we know what they are. They're operating by the powers of darkness. And so they're, they're using dark magic. And so they convince the crowd that they're evil and the threat to their society. Uh, they've already caused trouble down the road. Don't let them cause trouble here. And Paul is stoned and left for dead. I think we often think of Paul as a great preacher and missionary, almost an irresistible force. But he was rejected so often. I mean, everywhere he went. I think we're given the impression that everywhere he went, he was able to plant a church. And so that's a a really good thing. But also, everywhere that he went, he was opposed. There were people that didn't listen to him. And and I think there's something there for us to learn, that that maybe when we want to talk about Jesus, when we want to invite friends or co-workers, to an event, to a church service, to something, that maybe we, we give up too soon. Because it wasn't just that he was a super great preacher. It was that he had a persistence to keep going even in the face of physical violence, being left for dead. Okay, I've spent a lot of time on this background information. And I've done that because I really just want to make one point. The Jews and the Gentiles persecuting Paul and Barnabas, I don't believe are that different from ourselves. You see, we have a habit of reading scripture that makes us Paul and Barnabas. And, 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 And here's the problem with that is that there's very few of us that get to stand in front of a crowd of people and talk about Jesus. Or that want to. There's very few of us that travel to places outside our comfort zone to meet new people, to share the gospel with those that need it. And even though we don't do the things that Paul and Barnabas are doing, we still say, oh, as I read this story, I'm Paul and Barnabas. And it's a big, bad world out there. And, and there's going to be oppression, there's going to be opposition, and people don't like me. And, and so we just, we stay where we are. And we're like the Paul and the Barnabas at home version. <laughs> and, and, and so we're, we're living this out. And we've got that same world out there, but we're just at home. I think that we're not Paul and Barnabas. I think in most cases, we're the Jews and the Gentiles. We're the ones who are here in the mess. I'm going to guess. I know I get to talk once or twice every week, okay? Um, But most of us do a lot more listening than we do talking. So right away as we look at this story, 
We're the audience, not the speaker. And I want you to think, how, what can we learn from this audience? When we look at them and we see them so quick, it seems, to kill Paul and Barnabas, we go, oh, that's not me. I think it was over a much longer period of time. But what are the things that we would like them to do differently? Because if we ask what would we like them to do differently when they hear a new teaching, when they hear something unfamiliar, then are we willing to, maybe we can learn from that, of what we can do differently as listeners. So I'll just give you a few. You maybe have some ideas. But I think Paul and Barnabas would have really liked for that crowd to ask questions. If there's something you don't understand, ask questions. Let me explain. Give me a chance to explain myself. Before you jump to a conclusion of what it is that I'm saying or why I'm saying it. Get to understand and know Paul and Barnabas. Where are their hearts? Are they motivated? Are they dedicated to God? Are they seeking money and riches and wealth and fame for themselves? Get to know them as people and what what motivates them. Um, Maybe some some other things that we would like them to do is uh, we'd like them to take more time to think. Don't be so impulsive to pick up stones. Take time to think about what you've heard, to evaluate it. Um, Sometimes when things are new, we we need that processing time. Sometimes uh, we need to talk to other people, get a second perspective, get a second view. Anybody done that with the whole pandemic stuff? You hear something on the news, do you make a decision based on that? Do you go get, or even worse, from a Facebook post? Do you go get a second opinion? Maybe, now not just from the person that posted that Facebook post, but do you get a second opinion from a doctor, a researcher, from somebody that you respect? How's this impacting your life? Maybe you speak to someone else that's taken the vaccine or isn't, or you, you hear those stories before jumping to judgments of what is going on. So think about it. Talk to other people um, in, in the case of Scripture, we want to say research it. Read Scripture and study out that topic to see if it lines up with what they're, they're teaching. And I think Paul and Barnabas would also, probably the main thing they would like is they would like for these, this crowd to take time to pray about what they're hearing and to listen to God. So we'd say those outcomes that Paul and Barnabas received in these cities maybe would have been different if the crowd, the Jews and the Gentiles, the listeners, had implemented each of those steps. But then think about our lives. How many of those things do we incorporate into our process of discernment? When you hear a new idea, do you pray about it? Do you think about it in that way? Do you get second opinions? Do you... Because I think there's a lesson there for us. If we're more often the crowd than we are the speaker, then how is our discernment process more godly, a more godly response than that of the people that oppose Paul and Barnabas in this passage? Because it's an ordinary, Paul and Barnabas are ordinary people speaking to ordinary people who are just doing their best to defend what they believe is important to them and important to God. I hope that's us. That we're willing to defend what's important to God and important to us. And so this kind of, I think, sets the scene for how we read this as we go through. Don't view them as the enemy. Don't view them as terrible people. View them as people trying to serve God. Trying to be faithful to their families, to the next generation, to raise up their kids in the right way with the values that that God wants them to have. And recognize ourselves in these stories as we go through the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas traveled to Derby. They spent some time there after he's left for dead. And then uh, they, they, instead of keep, it'd be shorter, right, for them to continue from here back to their home base in Antioch. Instead, they decide to go back into the lion's den and retrace their steps because they care about the churches 
that they've left behind. So he has to go from Derby, turn around and go back to the city where he was stoned and left for dead. That's his first stop after Derby. Then go back to Iconium where the people who stoned him came from. Then go back to Antioch where the people chased him out of town. And then from there make his way back to Antioch. Back to his home sending church. So I want to finish just with this last observation. To me, this lesson is about ordinary people. It's not just about Paul and Barnabas. God was working through them. They traveled. They went to many different places. But it's about the ordinary people and how they respond because we're ordinary people, aren't we? And, and, and I think we can relate to them. But, but Paul and Barnabas depended on ordinary people for their ministry. After Paul was left for dead, he goes to Derby, and this is the passage, verses 21 through 28. In verse 20, he's left there, dragged outside the city, and dumped. But after the disciples had gathered around him. You see, Paul doesn't act on his own. The disciples gather around him. They pray over him. They care for him. They pick him up. They take him into the city. They, they bind his wounds and bathe them and treat him. They feed him. They give him a bed to rest in. And the next day, Paul doesn't travel to Derby by himself. He goes with Barnabas. And they go together. And look how often in this passage we see they. You see, Paul isn't acting alone. God didn't send Paul on this journey by himself. Paul is with the they. And, and think about those that, those, that group of Christians that after Paul has been stoned came and gathered around him, identified with him. They were the church. They knew the risks. They could have been next to be stoned. And instead, they, they pick him up and they care for him. And, and then he comes back and he teaches them. And, and he and Barnabas appoint elders in these towns. Think about it. Paul is not going to come back to these towns. I don't think he, he ever returns he gets back to Antioch. Most people think he wrote the letter of Galatians to these churches once he gets back to Antioch. But he has no direct contact with them. And, and so the elders that he appoints in these churches, in these places where he himself has been stoned, they're stepping up to take a leadership role in this new faith community. The mission, the success of Paul and Barnabas depended upon the elders in each of these cities. It depended upon the Christians in each of these cities. We don't know their names. We don't know all they did. We don't know the opposition they ran into and how much perseverance they required. But Paul couldn't do it on his own. Not even the great apostle was a one-man band. It was always a they, whether it be Paul and his traveling companions, Paul and the elders, Paul and the church. It was always a they, and Paul loved them. That's why he went back and retraced his steps. Because he cared about them and their faith and their relationship. There's so many topics in there. I've got just three there of other applications. Paul doesn't do it alone. His perseverance is admirable and an example for us. And everyone has a role. Because if Paul had just gone and preached and moved on to the next place, there wouldn't be a church today. Everyone has a role. I want to pray over you today. Father God, I've talked for a long time today. And... uh, I just pray that as we've spoken, as we've spent time uh, looking at this beginning of Paul's missionary endeavors, Father, that it motivates and inspires us, that your message is one that uh, is important, that Paul was willing to die for. Father, I don't see that on our horizon here, but but Lord, just give us a a courage, a determination, a perseverance to, to be open and about our faith, willing to share it with those around us. But Father, we also recognize that we're so often the crowd. Give us ears and hearts that are open to your spirit, that are open to examining what's tradition and what's truth and and how to present things. Help us to be open-minded, but at the same time to found our identity firmly within you. Father, and I pray that as we just throw up there on a slide that each of us has a role, Lord, that you will 
Help us today, each one of us, to see our role in your church, in your kingdom, how you can use us to contribute to all that you are accomplishing in this world and in this city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.